my pulse was 34 for wow. six weeks after. Wow. Welcome to For You The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are covering the escape of Second Lieutenant P.F.S. Douglas of the 8th Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders of the 51st Division. Now, I've got to say, I did an awful lot of research on this man, and other than his initials, we've got very little information. Couldn't even get his forenames, couldn't get his date of birth. We know he came from Kirk Newton in Midlothian, but we don't know when he was born, so we're, we're assuming he might be quite young for this particular engagement, and he was captured very early on in the war. It's yet another Dunkirk evacuation capture, but it's rather sad that I couldn't find anything at all. So he was also a man of little words, going by his report to start off with, mm-hmm. because he says, Prior to my capture, my unit was on the Somme. I was taken prisoner in June at Beloy when two of our companies surrendered to superior forces. Now, there's obviously a lot more of the story to that. So yes. I did go digging <laughs> to see what went on. And basically, so the order of battle for that particular time, so we're, we're talking June 1940 here, just before the, or part of the evacuation. So the part of the British Expeditionary Force. The 51st were tasked with holding nearly 18 miles of front line south of the Somme Canal, which, bearing in mind they were already on the retreat, they were quite depleted in their numbers. That's actually four times the normal distance that one would normally cover and protect with a whole division, not one that was already depleted by conflict and wounded and in the process of evacuation. So they were very, very, very stretched out. The 8th Battalion, there were a number of battalions, obviously, as part of the 51st that were trying to uh, protect the retreat. But the 8th Battalion in particular was occupying the area around Beloy, and they held it well until the 5th of June, when the Germans began a big advance which started at 9.30 in the morning and it was an infantry advance with armoured cars passing through all of the fields and everything else around there and they tried to punch through. It actually took two days, nearly three days for them to punch through but the 51st were highly outnumbered. You know, the report said there was nearly 1,500 troops, German troops, with armour and field artillery, whereas at the time the 8th Battalion totaled about 170 men, all of whom were exhausted and all were having to fight with very little food, very little rest and very little ammunition because they'd only been able to just carry what they could carry to get to their defensive positions. So it was around the 7th of June. It's not actually given on his report. He just says June. As I say, he seems to be a man of few words when it comes Mm. to his capture. But it was the 7th of June when they ended up being forced to surrender. Later on, the officer who was in charge reported that the 51st and the 8th Battalion in particular had been given an order to hold the line and received no further communication afterwards. So comms was evidently a big problem. So they, they didn't receive the evacuation order. They were just basically left to try and slow the enemy. And he said that it's actually, it's credit to those that stayed that shows that their hopeless odds with lacking in sleep and food is a, a measure of the determination that the, the whole group had to try and slow the enemy advance to allow those to get away. But that's really about all we managed to find or I managed to find on that particular battalion. We've seen other elements of the 51st did manage to get away. But in this particular case, second lieutenant douglas did not and he was captured and as he as he goes on to say in the in the start of his report he said we were not interrogated nor searched but all knives compasses etc were confiscated so that's how he came to be in german hands 
Yes, and as is pretty standard during that time, he was moved away from the front line fairly quickly. And he states he was taken by truck to Divisional HQ and then on to Cambrai, where he was put on a train for O-Flag 7C at Laufen. However, he did say that en route there was no interrogation or search until they got to Mainz, which is where they were temporarily held and put in small rooms, two to a room. So the interrogation itself, such as it was, seems to be fairly informal in that, as I said, they were put in a small room, two to a room. And then he states, afterwards we were questioned by a friendly German in an informal manner. The questions asked were disposition of units, etc. So this is certainly a long way away from the sort of Gestapo-esque light in the eyes, matchsticks under the fingernails, forms of interrogation, but not as sophisticated as you might see at, say, Dulagluft, for example. But I mean, in I don't want to say fairness, it's the wrong word, but at that time, as we know, the Germans were still in their infancy with regards to their protocols for mm. for captured uh, individuals. So there didn't seem to be any set protocol to follow at that time other than getting them as far away from the front as possible. Mm-hmm. So the journey itself seems to have been a fairly brutal experience, as he says that in the train we were herded into cattle trucks, about 70 per truck, and the door locked upon us. Water and bread were brought occasionally, and although no one died, our condition upon arrival at the permanent camp was weak. And he even says that my pulse was 34 for six weeks after. Wow. Which is unhealthily low. And it's interesting that he said, although no one died. I mean, it sounds like he was expecting people to die in those conditions. It was sufficiently bad enough for it to be a reasonable expectation that someone would. And certainly if your pulse is 34 for six weeks. He wasn't far off himself. Yeah, it sounds that way, doesn't it? He arrived at O-Flag 7C at Laufen on the 17th of June, where they were immediately searched, all money, spare watches, etc., confiscated, although he managed to hide a £5 note and keep it on his person. Now, we haven't really come across Laufen before, so I did a little bit of research into where it was, what it was, and, okay. and so on. Yeah. Now, the report itself does state that it had previously been a palace of the Archbishop of Salzburg. And upon reading that, I, I assumed initially it was in Austria. Right, that would make perfect sense, yeah. But it wasn't. Oh. And still isn't. Oh. In fact, it is in southeast Bavaria on the Austrian border. So it is close to Austria, but quite how a town in Bavaria ended up hosting the palace for the Archbishop of Salzburg, I haven't worked out. Nonetheless, that is consistent. And then, in fact, there's a little bit more to it than that. Because Laufen Castle, which is what ultimately became O-Flag 7C is a 15th century square castle that overlooks the Salzach River. Now, it was only used as a prisoner of war camp from 1940 until 1942, when it became an intern camp for men who were from the British Channel Islands, and it wasn't to be liberated until the 5th of May 1945. So only three days before the end of the war... That's very late. ...was it liberated as an intern camp. Interesting. Yeah, and I also thought it was pretty interesting that it was British Channel Islanders that were held there. specifically that as well. Yeah, exactly. Now, there are a couple of prisoners of war that we will have heard of who spent some time in Laufen camp, Mm. including Pat Reed. Really? Yep. Yep. In fact, his escape... That, end, that saw him end up at Colditz was from Lyfen. Right, I see. Okay. And Desmond Llewellyn, who would go on to star as Q in, I think, about 17 James Of the Bond James films. Bond films. Interesting. No, that is interesting. I'm amazed I haven't come across Lyfen before as well. Yeah, and both actually ended up in Colditz. And that is not where the Colditz link ends, but I will come to that. So O-Flag 7C was 
generally considered a pretty difficult camp from which to escape. In fact, not wholly dissimilar to Colditz in that sense, because it was an ancient stone castle. It obviously had some pretty impregnable and imposing barriers to it, such as stone to dig through, that sort of thing. It wasn't sandy, hospitable ground through which to try and dig. And he does actually say that tunnelling was the only possibility of escape. Now, presumably that's a combination of the height of the walls, but also the thickness of the walls that kind of stopped you being able to, of the three options of escape of under, over and through, Mm. the height stops you going over and the thickness stops you going through, so you only have the option of going under. Now, I know Colditz was... Problematic problemat- in that. And, and even, you know, there there were certainly plenty of escape from Colditz for a variety of reasons, not least of which was it wasn't quite as impregnable as the Germans thought, but also if you're going to put all the ingenious inveterate escapers in one place they're going to make an attempt to escape as i've said before the problem with putting people in a fortress is a fortress is largely designed to stop people getting in Mm. yes it presents its challenges for people getting out but there's lots of little nooks and crannies and things and you know a castle by its very nature has big and deep drains because of the amount of people that were potentially there in a siege so there are ways and means of getting into systems that you wouldn't normally be able to get into from the outside so does it's not the most ideal i could see it would make sense Mm-hmm. It's not the most ideal situation. They're not impregnable, but they're certainly imposing. They are certainly and, imposing, yes. And by no means easy. No. However, one thing I did think was very interesting from the way he describes that, so I'm, I'm going to now quote from his report. He states, All Flag 7C was considered a difficult camp to escape from. At this camp, there was a German officer especially appointed to prevent escapes. Now, we've seen that before. Tunneling is the only possibility of escape. Now, the reason this is interesting is not so much the content itself, but the fact that from the off, almost from his arrival at All Flag 7C, he is clearly thinking about escape mm-hmm. himself. However, he makes no mention to an escape committee. Okay. So he is a little bit out on a limb here. Now, I've mentioned that Pat Reed did go through life, and so it wasn't that there weren't prisoners of war that were in Laufen who were escape-minded, mm-hmm. but he does seem to be a little bit unique here in that he has ended up in Laufen and is willing from the off to try and escape. Yeah. Because there is no systematic organisation, from what I can tell, in this camp. Understood. In order to assist them. And he does also say that it was a fairly brutal, difficult system under which to live. You know, for example, no extra clothing was issued on arrival. 80-odd prisoners of war were accommodated to a room, so they were Eighty in. eighty to a room, eight zero to a room. Yep. They were sleeping on three tier bunks and he even describes the, the food that they received. And it's it's pretty unappetizing. Because he, he states that at seven thirty in the morning he got a form of breakfast which was the Ersatz coffee and just Ersatz coffee. So no oh, actual okay. sustenance. And right. of course Ersatz coffee was made of acorns. It was. So We should really try some at some point. We talk about this most episodes, but I have never had any. Have you had any? No. So for breakfast, there was only coffee. Then at 11.30 in the morning, he had half a litre of thin soup and three potatoes. And then later in the afternoon, there was more soup and potatoes. Now that's pretty thin gruel Mm. at the best of times. But in fact, it gets worse. He even goes as far as to say, I received approximately three Red Cross parcels in nine months. Wow. Now... If I remember correctly, Red Cross parcels are supposed to arrive every two weeks. That's my understanding as well, yeah. So, given how often and how many prisoners of war state that the Red Cross parcels were crucial 
to their survival, not just their ability mm. to escape, but their actual survival, to be so poorly fed and receive only three Red Cross parcels in nine months. This is pretty poor conditions that they are living under, which is perhaps explains why he is a bit of a rarity in his willingness to escape. Yeah, I, I see. And furthermore, on Sundays, they received cheese, a square inch of margarine, and a spoonful of jam, and a loaf that had to last them five to six days. Oh. So that's all they were receiving over and above the thin soup and potatoes for a week. Wow. He also states that discipline was extremely strict under the commandant at this camp. Officers were not treated properly and more as if they were a form of criminal. Okay. Which is indicative of a bit of an attitude by the Germans holding them, perhaps early on, almost not dissimilar to how the Japanese consider prisoners of war, it sounds mm. like. But you see, we're talking of a strange time here, aren't we? I mean, mm. you know, nine months from his capture takes us through till the sort of second quarter of 1941. So the invasion of Russia hasn't happened yet or the attempted invasion, and you know, Operation Sea Line's been cancelled, but I'm not quite sure why there would be such brutal and harsh... I mean, it was it was basically a mass retreat from the British Expeditionary Force, mm. so I can't see that the Germans maybe felt hard done by at that particular point of the time. No, but then that wasn't why the Japanese treated them so badly. It was more they considered it a disgrace to be captured. Indeed. And so therefore treated those they captured very poorly. It wasn't because they felt badly done by at any stage in the war. And I'm just wondering if maybe that early on in the war, because they had defeated them so easily, they just had a complete disregard for those they had captured. Yeah. However, he does go on to explain some of the conditions that were in the camp over and above the treatment by the guards. So he does say that games and books were delivered directly to their rooms after examination, although the outer covers of the books were never passed on to the prisoners of war, so you basically had bound pages and that's it. All letters were also passed through the German censor, and he does acknowledge that codes were in use and most people were on the lookout for them, which is interesting because it shows that quite early on there was efforts for intelligence to be gathered and sent out of the camps, which we know from our episode with Helen Fry how important that was oh, absolutely. to British intelligence. Yeah. So from the German perspective, he states that propaganda was definitely tried on the prisoners of war. The Germans were quite good at worming their way into the good graces of some who were beginning to tolerate them. However, the shooting of Lieutenant D's changed that attitude a bit, which I imagine it would have done, yes. Indeed. If you... the guards are murdering prisoners of war, that tends not to make them too popular. No. Do we, do we know anything about the circumstances of that or not? Not at all. No, no so it's just a throwaway comment that yeah. somebody was shot and yeah. it upset things in the camp. Exactly. Uh, nonetheless, morale was excellent. Officers were not compelled to work, they were just treated poorly and treated like criminals. However, there was one interesting point that he did make, which was that Irish prisoners of war were treated differently. German agents used to come down and talk to the Irish prisoners of war, and I understand Major Brush pretended to be sympathetic in order to find out what was behind it all. Now, we haven't really covered Irish prisoners of war before, but there is a very interesting history to this. Which it sounds like you've looked into and can tell us about it. Yes, a little bit. Excellent. Um, so, it goes back to the First World War, really. Because, of course, the Easter Uprising was in 1916, which is slap bang in the middle of the First World War. And then the separation of Ireland that came off the back of that in, in 1922 was still very, very recent memory at this point. I mean, if we're talking about 1941, we're talking about less than 20 years after the separation of Ireland. Now, there are a couple of considerations, and I'm, I'm skirting over the full ins and outs of the history a little bit here, but in essence, 
Ireland remained neutral throughout the war. They often receive a lot of criticism because the then Taoiseach Eamon de Valera did sign a book of condolence to Hitler in 1945 after Hitler committed suicide, which as a neutral country was stretching diplomacy a little bit and there is a lot of criticism for that. I am not defending de Valera for that one by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just stating that it happened. I mean... Although it's worth pointing out, I think, that there were a number of neutral territories and countries during the war who, sympathetic is probably the wrong word, but they, in some cases, helped both sides. And that's that's quite common. Sweden is one in particular. Yeah. And again, there were many sort of Swiss-based companies that continued to trade with both sides throughout the war. So, yeah. And, and I'm by- not looking at the little places like Liechtenstein and things like that, but there are, it, it was known. Yeah. And it, it, by definition, if you're neutral, there's no reason why you can and shouldn't trade with either side. However, the interesting thing is, in essence, history remembers de Valera's actions right at the end of the war. But, in reality, it is probably fair to say that they were neutral, but pro-Allied. Now, not necessarily pro-British, but certainly pro-Allied in their actions. Now, this is borne out by certainly not anything overt, but there was a lot of quietly pro-Allied action that the Irish took throughout the war that suggests that the way they are remembered for their neutrality is maybe a touch unfair, I would say. Others will disagree with me on this one, I'm sure. However, there were things like they were scrupulously fair and even-handed in providing shipping reports off the west coast of Ireland, so we're talking about the Atlantic Ocean here. They were, as I say, scrupulous in ensuring that both the British and the Germans received it. However, they were also fully aware that only one of those nationalities were in any way, shape or form in a position to do anything about it because by definition, the British had bases in Northern Ireland and had the range to send planes out into the Atlantic Ocean, at least to a certain degree, in order to try and do something about that shipping if they needed to. The Germans did not have that range and and even if they did, in order to do it, they would either have to travel across Britain and therefore risk having those planes down or travel up from France, which meant greater distance. So although that was a technically neutral action, it was done with full knowledge of who had the capability to do anything about it. Okay, I see. So, And there's a lot of little examples like this whereby you could argue that there was a pro-Allied attitude, but not necessarily pro-British, which is often forgotten, partly because the best will in the world, and due to long-standing historical and political reasons, the Irish weren't necessarily wanting to remember that they had pro-Allied tendencies. Although, as we've seen in this, and you know the fact that there were Irish prisoners of war, and we've come across it in various other units, there were Irish combatants that did come and join the armed forces, the Allied armed forces, to fight. Well, yes, and Indeed, and this is actually where it gets even more interesting and nuanced than what I've just covered. Because, you know, things like the shipping reports came from, if you like, official institutions, the Irish government, coast guards, that sort of thing. But because Ireland was neutral, any Irishman who was in the services pre-war effectively saw that there was a Second World War going on on their doorstep, and they were digging ditches and holes in the middle of County Kildare and places like this. They were bored out in their mind. They knew fine well that if they crossed up into Northern Ireland and crossed over into mainland Britain, they could go and fight if they wanted to. And if you sign up into the army or other services, by definition, you tend to want to go and fight if there's a war on. So actually, there were a significant number of Irish servicemen that came across and served in 
British services and served on the front line. Now, we know that there were certainly some in the army from this report and, and others. Paddy Finnegan, a very famous mm. fighter pilot who was a Battle Britain ace, if I remember correctly. He's another example of someone who served in the RAF, who was an Irish citizen who had come over in order to fight. There are also examples of Irish medical professionals, you know, nurses and doctors who came over to serve as nurses and doctors. And photo reconnaissance pilots. Indeed. There are, we know of at least four photo reconnaissance pilots who were from Ireland. And so it is not as uncommon as is generally accepted that the Irish did come over and serve in the British forces. There's a couple of other reasons, not least of which is often their fathers served in the First World War in British services, particularly in the army. And there was often a family tradition to serve in the British army. Now that has, granted, died off over the last 50 to 80 years. Troubles played a significant part in that. I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But up until the 40s, it was recent memory to have fathers uncles, even grandfathers, serving in the British forces. Mm. But one of the other reasons why that has often been forgotten is the way they were treated when they returned to Ireland post-war, because the Irish government came down on them like a ton of bricks, to the point that they were even deprived pensions and that sort of thing. It is a sore point amongst those Irish veterans that came back and lived in Ireland. Often, of course, many of them have now died off, but it was a long-standing sore between them and the Irish government. And so, as a net result of this, the post-war memory of Irish servicemen in the British forces, which was often motivated by, a, as I say, a pro-Allied rather than a pro-British attitude, but the post-war memory is often filtered through things that happen later on, such as, as I say, De Valera's actions, and then from there, the way that the Irish government treated the servicemen who returned to Ireland having served in the British forces. But the point of all that is, understandably, the Germans identified Irish prisoners of war as a potential source for turning them and to come over and fight for them. Yeah, because of what had happened. Because of what had happened only 20 years previously. The Germans basically argued, well, why are you fighting for the British? You should come and fight for us. There are so few examples of Irishmen doing that. There are one or two, but it is in very small figures. We're talking about double, if not single figures, of the numbers of Irishmen who turned over to the Germans. It is a tiny, tiny amount. And that, I think, is very indicative of the attitude of those who served as Irishmen in the British services. Which, of course, I don't think is helped by things such as, I think it's the Eagle has landed, hasn't it? Where one of the main characters is a, an Irishman who's working for the Germans. However, there are vast swathes of Irishmen who served to oppose fascism and who, who were deeply opposed to fascism, often for political reasons. Vast swathes of socialists in Ireland who came over to the United Kingdom in order to fight fascism. And many of them had actually fought in Spain. Oh, really? Against Franco, yeah. They'd been oh, in the okay. International Brigade, had got experience of service and felt that it was a continuation of the same battle. And so came over to Britain in order to continue that fight against fascism. So again, it's not necessarily a pro-British attitude they had. It was an anti-fascist one. Anti-fascist attitude. And it is often forgotten that thousands of Irishmen did this. And while there is a long, deep and complex history between Britain and Ireland, this is a small subsection of that history that I think is a positive on all sides. I think the Irishmen deserve to be remembered for the service they gave. And I also think that the British should be recognised for the fact that they looked after them, treated them well while they served with them. And in many cases, those that went back and weren't treated well came back to Britain. So I think I think it is worth knowing and remembering and adding in because 
because as I say, many of them did become Irish prisoners of war, being held by the Germans, and when they were offered the chance, many of them quite openly stated actually that we are British officers, we are British NCOs, and while I wear the British uniform, I consider myself British. Hmm. It, it is a, it's a very, very interesting subsection of British Irish history that I think is little known and I think actually largely everyone comes out of it pretty positively. Yeah, and it's good to cover in this. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Otherwise completely irrelevant to this report whatsoever. So he spent about nine months at Laufen and then eventually the officers were removed from All Flag 7C and sent to Stalag 21D in February 1941. Now again, we haven't covered Stalag 21D in any great depth previously so I'll go into a little bit of what it consisted of. So it was made up of three forts, Rauch, Pritfitz and Grohlman and Douglas was held in Rauch which has since been demolished and there is now a college of Poznan University of Technology which stands in its site. Pritfitz was converted to a crematorium and stands in the Milishtov Cemetery in Poznan but Grohlman still stands there. These are all forts. Groman still stands and is located close to the Lech Poznan football stadium. Yeah, but Poznan's interesting because that was a very, uh, that particular part of Poland nowadays had an awful lot of camps around there, mm. as we well know. Mm-hmm. So interesting that they were putting them all there. Mm-hmm. So they were sent there at the end of February 1941, sent by train, and they were held. In fact, this is the reason why I knew it was Rauch, because only one of the forts used the underground cellars and basement for accommodation which was Rauch, and he states in his report that he was accommodated in an old Polish fort underground. Just in a basement, just in, you know, nothing untoward, or it wasn't, you know, thrown in the dungeons or anything like that. Mm. But, because he stated specifically that he was held in the fort underground, I could tell that it was Rauch, because that was the only one that used the cellars and the basements for accommodation. Understood, yeah. Now, what is interesting is clearly the attitude at Stalag 21D is a bit different from All Flag 7C because he states, at this camp there was a committee headed by Colonel Todd to help anyone who wished to escape. Maps and dyes were brought in by two Polish electricians working in the fort and a guard was bribed at one time. So this is clearly a more organised setup that existed in this camp. And while he says that it was a strict regime, it was definitely better than All Flag 7C for conditions, etc. It couldn't have got much worse from how he was describing he was being fed and looked after, so... No, indeed. So again, interestingly, at this camp, there are more coldest links. So he states that Major Littledale, Second Lieutenant Sinclair and EGB Davis Scurfield escaped on the 29th of May and they were making for Russia. Now I looked into this a little bit further because I thought it was quite interesting that he mentioned it. All three of them were to end up in coldest. Mm-hmm. So they managed to make, make it to Warsaw where they made contact with the Polish underground. However, Davis Scurfield was recaptured in Warsaw, while Littledale and Sinclair managed to continue on, but were eventually recaptured in Bulgaria, and as I said, all were sent to Colditz. Now, Davis Scurfield was to make one more escape attempt, but ultimately was liberated in 1945. Mm-hmm. Major Littledale was to make another escape attempt and succeeded in getting back. Okay. And Second Lieutenant Sinclair is... The Red Fox, Mike Sinclair. Now, you love Mike Sinclair. He's one of your all-time heroes, I reckon. I've done a lot of work on Colditz too many years ago now, over 10 years ago, and Mike Sinclair was a big part of that work. And having been to Colditz, and without wanting to give away what happened to Mike, you know, he is a major, 
major character within that particular prisoner war camp and he's everywhere and mm-hmm. traces of his various attempts and ingenious attempts to get out are widely spoken about he is a legend he, I mean, is, he, a legend. he is anyone who's read reads called it story he features heavily in mm. that and he is an absolute legend of certainly prisoner war escape history in general but specifically called its history in particular. He's just, he is a phenomenally inventive escaper. Absolutely. And not just for his own benefit. Mm. Also, you know, there was a number of attempts that he had that would have only really benefited his colleagues. Yeah. No, I think the reason he mentioned their escape is because it took place only two days before his own. Okay. So they escaped on the 29th of May, and he was to make his escape on the 31st of May, 1941. So he escaped with a gentleman called Coxage, and they were put into sacks and then into wooden containers which carried the refuse out of the camp. He then states, We were carried out by orderlies to the refuse dump, which was about 50 yards from the camp. It had previously been arranged that someone would signal from the camp roof that everything was all right. After lying for about an hour in the refuse dump, we received this signal. Now, that sounds like a pretty unpleasant experience. It does. We don't know what the signal was. We don't. In fact, I think we have to assume it probably was. I think you're right. A whistle of some description rather than a visual signal. So as I say, I can't imagine it was particularly pleasant, but it must have also had some implications because the smell alone, while being unpleasant would also have had the implication of making you smell like a tramp. Yes. Which draws attention and therefore makes it more difficult to escape. Particularly if you're not dressed like a tramp. Yes, indeed. Nonetheless, he makes no reference as to how he overcame this issue. All he states is that we made our way to what is now Poznan, then Posen. We made our way to Poznan where we hoped to meet a pole at the tram terminus. However, he did not turn up. We did try to find his house, but the search was unsuccessful. We therefore decided to stick together and make for Russia. They were wearing civilian clothing made out of uniforms and they had with them a compass, two maps, one of Sweden and one of Russia. Now, Coxage had the Russian map, but Douglas had the map for Sweden, which becomes significant later on. Okay. So having not managed to meet up with this pole at the tram terminus, they decided to walk due south until they hit the railway going southeast and jumped a train at 0100 hours the next day. The following morning, having travelled about 100 miles, they arrived at Ostrov where the train stopped. So they had travelled in the little guard's compartment at the back of the train and when they arrived in Ostrov, a German civilian walked into the compartment and the civilian was immediately suspicious. So they instantly left as quickly as possible because one or two people started shouting at them. And when that happened, they decided to go their different ways because they had arranged previously that in the event of trouble, they would part ways. Yes, that would make sense. You've got a greater chance of survival if you're Also makes it harder to follow. Yeah, absolutely. You can only follow one in theory. Yeah. So all during that day, he hid in some nearby woods, having decided it'd be best to travel at night. And that night, he then walked due east in order to try and make contact with the railway line again. However, the following day, he decided to travel by day instead. Now, after four days of travelling due east, he came to the conclusion that he would make for Sweden. Now, having initially decided they were going to head for Russia... If you remember, I said Coxage had the Russian map and Douglas had the Swedish map. Ah, yes. Therefore, it made sense for him to try and make his way towards Sweden. Yeah. So he therefore decided to change direction and make for the railway line which was going north so he could make his way to the Baltic coast. Now, he says that the only food that he had was chocolate and that ran out on the fourth day. Now, while chocolate is undoubtedly delicious, it is also 
a rarity in occupied Europe, so stands out a bit, and also not that full of sustenance to keep you going for four days. Yeah, that's true. And nonetheless, it ran out on the fourth day. So after this, he used the approach of going up to Polish farms and isolated districts that asked for water. And if he found that they were willing to help him, he then revealed his identity and was given food. And in one case, a woman even gave him four marks, although he did not need it. They were also willing to give him information as to the direction of the train track he needed to make towards. And on the 10th day, he hit the railway line. Oh, okay. So, so he travelled for six days without food and relying on the generosity of locals which is actually quite impressive, Mm. not least because he managed to avoid being handed in. And having arrived at the railway line, he found that some Poles were living right on the railway line and they were willing to help him jump a train. And indeed, before even boarding the train, they were sheltered him for two days, giving him food and allowing him to sleep in the barn. So having boarded the train, he found himself in a coal truck and this eventually arrived in Danzig, which of course is one of the major ports in Poland. It is indeed. Now Gdansk, but was one of the major ports in Poland, particularly with a lot of ships heading towards Sweden. So as the train that he was on stopped just outside of Danzig, he decided to leave it there and then, which I think is quite a smart move actually. So having left the train, he found himself in a dock area and in a basin of the dock he saw two or three Swedish ships. These docks were protected by barbed wire, but he managed to find a a hole in the wire through which he was able to reach the quay. So having got himself inside of the docks, almost immediately a German official started speaking to him and wanting him to do some work. Now this German official took him to see another official who started asking him questions, to which he replied, ja or nein. Which, of course, I'm is taking, German for yes or no. I'm taking it that's the limit, potentially, of his German. Well, possibly, but he does state that he understood quite a bit of the conversation and that he gathered that they wanted his work ticket, and as he could not produce one, they decided that he was a slacker and informed him that if he wanted work, he wouldn't be able to obtain any without this ticket. So he clearly understood the basis of the conversation, even if he wasn't willing to actually converse with them in German. Mm. Actually, I must admit, I was quite impressed by his ability to blag his way out of a potentially dangerous situation using only two words of rudimentary German. Mm -hmm. And having managed to get away from the officials, he ultimately found himself inside the dock with no one really around him and relatively free to roam. One of his observations was that he stated that many officials remained outside the line of the cranes and the space between the cranes and the ships was actually comparatively safe. He therefore made his way towards this area and proceeded to the other side of the dock where there was another Swedish ship. So he goes on to state, Finding the place more or less deserted, I walked on board and found a Swede talking to a German. I drew the Swede to one side and told him in very bad German, so there's I get it. potentially yep. the limit of his, his German. He might yep. be able to understand it, but not able to speak it all that well. I told him in very bad German who I was and if he would help. After this, the conversation was conducted in English. He stated that he could not actively help, but agreed to turn his back while I stowed myself away. The following morning, I was officially discovered by the mate, who was very rude and was taken to the captain. After giving him all the details of myself, the captain agreed to let me remain on the boat until she docked in Sweden. So the following morning, they docked in Sweden, and on arrival, I was taken away by the police and put into jail. Which of course, because he's, he's arrived with no papers. Yeah, exactly. So not uncommon. And we've seen that in Switzerland as well. In the meantime, the Swede who had agreed to help me originally went to the consul and told him of my arrival in Sweden, the result of which was that I only remained in jail for two days. So in total, it took him around about two weeks to arrive in Stockholm. It's pretty good going. Not bad Bearing in mind he was walking for the first... Ten six, days. Yeah, with very little food. Yeah. That's good going. Yeah, indeed. And having arrived in Stockholm on the 12th of June 1941, he arrived back in the UK on the 20th of July 1941. 
Yeah. So so really, he reached freedom in just over a year after capture. Yes, yeah, barely a year. So, yeah. But unfortunately, I mean, that's very early in the war mm. for him to get back. And obviously, he would have continued his service, one would have thought. But we found, or in particular, I found no further trace of him. I think the good thing we can take from it is that he doesn't appear on the Commonwealth War Graves list. So one would assume he survived the war in whichever guise that he continued on. but And possibly returned home to Midlothian. Potentially, but we've not managed to confirm it. We couldn't confirm his four names. But yeah, very little record other than this particular escape report held in the archive. So if anyone does have any information on what happened to him, we'd love to fill in the gaps as to uh, what happened next. Yeah, it's a real shame because actually it's a, it's a really good escape. You know, we've seen others try and get out by hiding in refuse dumps and that sort of thing. And usually they're captured when the German guards poke a bayonet into the pile of rubbish that they're hiding under and that sort of thing. So we've seen efforts similar to this, but not really any who actually succeeded. And then he walked effectively by himself for nearly two weeks weeks got himself onto a train with the help of some poles and within two days of getting onto a train he was in Sweden having stowed away on a Swedish ship so it is a really good effort and two weeks is a pretty quick turnaround it's quicker than many that we've looked at so it's, it's a shame we couldn't find any more information on him as an individual but maybe there are some family members out there who are listening and if you are please do get in touch well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcast, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at FYTWIO. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at FYTWIO podcast at gmail.com.